I want to begin this morning by asking a question. What do tents in the wilderness, the promised rest, and the abundant life have in common? And how do they relate to the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day? How would you answer that question? Let's begin by turning to Exodus 23 and verse 14. Exodus 23 and verse 14. This is the first mention of the festivals of God in the Bible, in specific terms. Exodus 23 and verse 14. Three times or seasons you shall keep a feast to me in the years. Mr. Weston mentioned last night. This is not a vacation. It's not our feast. It's a feast to honor God, to honor the God who is here and present with us. We assemble today in his presence. Verse 15, and you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, the first of the three. And then verse 16, the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, the early harvest, the grains primarily, and a few other items. And then the third, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, meaning the end of the agricultural year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. We see here three seasons, representing three things. First, a death resulting in a new life. The second season is the harvest of the first. And the third season represents the harvest of the rest, the rest of the crops of the agricultural year. And so we are here to celebrate that third season the spiritual harvest of the rest of humanity. Leviticus 23 and verse 39. Leviticus 23 and verse 39. Here we have an encapsulated instruction about this particular feast. Leviticus 23 and in verse 39. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month of the sacred calendar, which is today, When you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And as we read earlier, also a holy convocation where we assemble in God's presence as we do today. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So we see it's not just seven days, but eight days. And we see again in this chapter that on the eighth day, we are also to assemble in God's presence. So after trumpets, picturing Christ's return to this earth, and atonement, picturing the imprisonment of Satan and his demons, and the establishment of Christ's rule over the earth, come festivals that picture the ushering in of a new age, a different time, a better time to come. Let's turn to Zechariah 14 and verse 8. Zechariah 14 and verse 8. Mr. Weston was making reference to these scriptures last night. But something significant will happen at that time, something that is not happening today in a general sense. And here we see it pictured in symbol. Zechariah 14 and verse 8. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, symbolizing the giving of God's Holy Spirit, 
the opening of access to it to the rest of humanity. Half of them towards the Eastern Sea, which literally, of course, uh, would mean the Dead Sea, bringing life to it, and half of them towards the Western Sea, what we call today the Mediterranean. And in both summer and winter, it shall occur. What's the significance about that? It's referring to year-round. So the access will be year-round. The Holy Spirit, accessible only to the first fruits of this age, will be made accessible to the rest of humanity in the next age, making the spiritual harvest of the rest of humanity possible. Today I'd like to read a few excerpts to you from a book that some of you may be familiar with. Maybe you haven't read it in a while. It was called The Mystery of the Ages, and it was written by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. A few weeks ago, I went back and read the chapter on the kingdom of God. And his writing was so refreshing and so clear. And there's a lot that he said here, and he was quite descriptive. But regarding this, he writes, With Christ's coming shall begin the process of re-education, opening deceived minds, of undeceiving minds, and bringing them to a voluntary repentance. God's law and the word of the eternal shall go forth from Zion, spreading over the whole earth. The 6,000-year sentence God placed on Adam's world of being cut off from God will be ended. And Christ will begin calling all mortals on earth to repentance and spiritual salvation. That is what's going to happen when this day becomes reality. He goes on to describe a world, quote, of no illiteracy, no poverty, no famine and starvation, a world where crime decreases rapidly. People learn honesty, chastity, no morality, proper morality, human kindness and happiness, a world of peace, prosperity, and abundant well-being. It's almost hard to envision that, isn't it, in our world today? We have the exact opposite, don't we? And yet a time is coming when the world will be an entirely different place. But what about, again, our original question? Tents in the wilderness, the promised rest, and the abundant life. Will this that's been described be it or not? Let's turn to Leviticus 23 and verse 40 and address the first of the three Tents in the wilderness. What do they teach us? Leviticus 23 and verse 40. Leviticus 23 and verse 40. God's instructions to his people. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths, temporary dwellings, for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. It's instruction for everyone to do this because of what it pictures. Verse 43, why? that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord 
your God. Why temporary dwellings? The answer is simple. It's expressed here. To picture Israel in the wilderness. But what is significant about this? Why Israel in the wilderness? Well, Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land pictures our spiritual journey from conversion to eternal life. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, where Paul gives us a bit of the symbolism here. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Paul understood this, that Israel's example and Israel's journey was a picture of ours. And here he's only giving us part of that picture, part of the symbolism here. But we can see from it and expand it to understand the whole picture. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, the Israelites who came out of Egypt, were under the cloud. Who is in the cloud? God in spirit. And all passed through the sea. What's that about? Water. And so we see here water and spirit. What's that connected to? Baptism, isn't it? and the laying on of hands. All were baptized into Moses. And who was Moses a type of? Jesus Christ. So as they were baptized into Moses, we are baptized into Jesus Christ. In the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. What was that spiritual food? Oh, it was food from heaven, wasn't it? It was manna. And they all drank of the same spiritual drink. What was spiritual about it was it was miraculously provided, and that was water. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Note the parallels we see here in this. Egypt, as we know, represents the sinful world in which we live. And Israel's slavery represents our slavery to sin before God calls us. The sacrifice of the lamb at Passover in Egypt is likened to the sacrifice of the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The Red Sea crossing represents baptism. As we said and saw, the sea represents the waters of baptism and the cloud, the spirit of God that's given to us after we are baptized. The wilderness represents our converted lifetime, the entirety of that lifetime from our calling to our death learning and applying God's way in this world. The crossing of the Jordan, which was miraculous as well, represents our change from mortal to immortal. And then finally, as we know, the promised land represents eternal life in the divine family of God. And so in Israel's journey, we see our own. If the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day picture the glorious age to come, Why tents in the wilderness? Because isn't that the middle of everything? Why not the promised land? Wouldn't you think if we're envisioning this wonderful time that it should be the promised land? And yet God says, no, it's to represent tents or be represented by tents in the wilderness. Does that make you a little confused? For some it does. For me, years and years ago, it did. I wasn't quite sure why. Well, because the millennium and the great white throne judgment period will be a time in which human beings will live and learn under divine rule. 
just like Israel in the wilderness. You see, there's a picture here, and we're going to continue to see a consistent uh, statement being made here by God about what you and I need to remember. Human beings will live under divine rule in the millennium period and in the period of the great white throne judgment, just like Israel in the wilderness. What about the promised land? Well, we'll get to that. Let me read to you, uh, to you again from Mr. Armstrong in The Mystery of the Ages. He says, notice how the new world government will function. It will be divine government, theocracy, the government of God ruling over humans. All in government service will then be divine spirit beings. That's intended to be you and me in the kingdom of God, the God family. There will then be two kinds of beings on earth, humans being ruled by those made divine. So there will be a distinction between the two. He continues, the governing family will bring about the coming utopia by two basic courses of action. First, all crime and organized rebellion will be put down by force, divine supernatural force. And maybe someone will bring that up during the feast, but when you look at Isaiah 2 and it talks about Christ dealing with the nations, it says he will be an arbiter. He will arbitrate between the nations. When do you need to arbitrate? When there's conflict, when there are difficulties between people. It's not going to start smoothly. It will take time, and sometimes force will need to be used. Secondly, Mr. Armstrong writes, Christ will then set his hand to re-educate and save or spiritually convert the world. The kingdom of God will rule over the peoples and nations of the earth. Yet these mortal peoples and nations will not be the kingdom. Not even in the kingdom of God. They shall be merely ruled over by it. You see, that's a distinction we have to remember we talk about the coming kingdom of God and we think, okay, coming kingdom of God means the millennium, means the last great day or the great white throne judgment period. But Mr. Armstrong makes very clear, don't mix the two. It's very critical for us to understand this distinction because in it is a very powerful message and it's meant to encourage you and me about where we are headed and where the whole world will be taught that they are to be headed. So in other words, mortal peoples and nations on earth governed by the divine family of God will essentially not yet have reached the ultimate goal. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, they will not yet have reached the promised land. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. You see, we come here to the feast I know from just our area and our five congregations what people have been going through. There are a number of people here, not here today, because of all sorts of issues going on in their lives. Those of us who are here, if we gave you time, if we had weeks for you to get up and tell your story, could probably tell us about what you've been facing. It's not easy living in this world, is it? It's not easy even if you're just stuck in your house. If you're sick, if you're terminally ill, and things of that nature. Here, Paul tells us what we have to look forward to. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are, whether you live another 
5, 10, 15, 20 years or whether perhaps you don't live that long. He says, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, we know that if our earthly house, this tents, we are in tents right now. These mortal bodies are tents, temporary dwellings. If this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a spiritual body waiting for us, a house, a permanent dwelling, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Mr. Weston talked about it last night. The the older you get, uh, the more you look forward to your house, right? When you're younger, you're going, not yet. I felt that way. I was called when I was 21 years old, and I heard scriptures like this too and thought, oh, boy, really? (laughs) So now I'm 61, married, have two kids, both grown. And I can say as I get older, and I'm not as old as many of you sitting here tonight or this this morning, well, I'm ready. (laughs) I'm good. Let's go. You know, it changes, doesn't it? as you mature and you learn. But we who are in this tent grow, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. He's saying it's not, we don't have a death wish here going on, but further clothed, a better life, that mortality may be swallowed up by life, by eternal life. Our mortal lives are like tents in the wilderness. We look for a permanent home a different existence, a mortal and eternal in the family or kingdom of God. This is what we will teach the rest of humanity in the next age, that they're just in the wilderness and not yet in the promised land. But what about the promised rest that is spoken of? Let's find out about that. That's the second question. What does that have to do with this feast? Let's turn to Psalm 95 and verse 7. Psalm 95 and verse 7. We see something here that we will see echoed as well this morning, later by Paul in his letter to the Hebrews. But notice it originally here in Psalm 95 and in verse 7. We'll start about halfway through verse 7 of Psalm 95. Today, the psalmist says, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's referring to Israel in the wilderness. They heard God's voice. Originally, they said, we will do everything he says. How long did that last? Less than 24 hours. All of a sudden, their hearts were hardened again. Oh, you mean we have to do that? Wait a minute. Where's the water? Where's the food? What's going on here? Let's go back to Egypt. You can't trust this God. That was the attitude they had. And that's what he's talking about here. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. See, all these things that God did for them, he's saying instead of them being the ones tested, they were testing God. Can he do this? Can he do that? Well, he's done this, 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 and this, but can he do that? Yeah, but it wasn't just a curious question. Well, wow, if he's done all of this, I wonder if he could do that too. That's a curious question. 
That's not what they asked. They were saying, well, he's done all of this, but we need this now. Is he going to be able to do that? There was an attitude behind it, and it wasn't a good one. Verse uh, 10 of Psalm 95, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. One translation says, They don't understand the way I do things. Verse 11, So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Those adults who came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. They didn't enter God's rest. But what was that rest for them? As we've seen, it was the promised land, which pictured eternal life in the divine family of God. But is that the only rest spoken of in God's word? Turn to Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. If we were to summarize it, there are two others. One is what we do every seventh day of the week. But as we'll see, there is another rest. And it is a rest that you and I have been promised we will enter into as long as we don't act like the Israelites did. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Notice what Paul writes here. Hebrews 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering God's rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Well, it can't be the promised rest of the promised land. We know that already. Is it just the Sabbath? Is he just saying every Sabbath you have a promised rest? Well, notice it says it's promised. If you're promised something, you don't have it yet, do you? Because if you have it, You don't have to worry about it being promised to you. So logic tells us it's talking about something else. See, it says a promise remains for us today of entering future tense, a literal rest. We're told that we have to be careful not to fall short of entering it, which means we haven't yet. So what is the rest spoken of here? Verse 2, Hebrews 4 and verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The Israelites were, in effect, given an idea of who God was and what he was doing. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. They did not have access to the Holy Spirit like we do today. And so it was knocking on a hardened head or a hardened heart. So it never really penetrated Verse 3, but we who have believed, you and me, do enter that rest. Now, remember, he just told us we haven't entered it yet. So we are in the process of it, he's saying. As he has said, as God has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Wait a minute. And see, he's saying there's another rest here. Uh, We enter a Sabbath rest. The Israelites were to enter the promised land. But is it the promised land? No. Is it the weekly Sabbath? No. Verse 4, for he has spoken a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all its works. 
It's not that either. We observe the weekly Sabbath rest every seventh day, which points to this other rest that Paul is referring to. Verse 8. Hebrews 4 and verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, if Joshua had led the Israelites into this promised rest that's being spoken of here, then, he, then God would not have afterwards spoken of another day, another rest. Verse 9, therefore, or there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Now that word rest means, sabbat, or is, is in the Greek, sabbatismos. Does it point to the weekly Sabbath? Certainly. But there's more to it than that, as I think we can see from the context here. We who have been called have the opportunity to enter into a rest that the Sabbath day points to, the ultimate rest. Again, eternal life in the divine family of God. As in other places, we're told we are heirs, but not yet inheritors. We are mortal, but not yet immortal. Romans 8 and verse 16. Romans 8 and verse 16. Paul talks about our situation here now. Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we talked about that the other day, that we know that our human reproductive systems picture what God is doing. That as the sperm unites with the egg and begins life, imparts life, and that that child who begins to grow is the child of its parents then. And as it grows and develops, it begins to look like its parents. It takes on its parents' characteristics. And eventually, at the end of its term, it is born, looking like its parents, at least to some degree. But that reproductive system pictures the spiritual reproductive system that God has, the process that he is working out. And so the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit, the the uniting of the two, like the sperm and the egg, that we are now children of God. Are we now divine, immortal, eternal? No, not yet. But we shall be. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs. We're not inheritors yet. Heirs of God and joint heirs with our older brother, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, so when, when does this come to fruition? Verse 11 of Romans 8, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies. If we're mortal, what is this life he's referring to? Eternal life, immortal life, through his spirit that dwells in you. This, too, is what we will teach the rest of humanity in the next age. Though humanity will be given a rest from the tyranny of Satan's rule, though the world will become a place of peace, prosperity, and abundant well-being, like Mr. Armstrong wrote, that wonderful world tomorrow will still not represent the promised ultimate rest. All peoples and nations will be taught that the ultimate goal is far more than a peaceful, prosperous world and a physical life of abundant well-being. 
We will teach them. You will teach them. That's not the goal. The goal is still to come. Then what about the abundant life that Christ talked about? That third part of the question. What was that about? Let's go to John 10 and verse 10. John 10 and verse 10, where he makes this statement. John 10 and verse 10. See, it's important to acknowledge that as we begin to live God's way of life more and more, we are blessed to to the degree that we do. But are we all here just rolling in the dough, in perfect health, perfect families, perfect marriages, perfect character? I won't ask for a show of hands. Because if you raise yours, I need to talk to you. And you need to tell me how you got there, okay? You see, again, we, we have or are able to experience a somewhat of an abundant life to the degree that we obey God. But that was not what Christ was talking about, not ultimately. And it's very important to understand that he said he was referring to two things in this statement, not just one. Notice, John 10 and verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal kill and destroy. Who is that talking about? Satan, the devil, the enemy, the adversary. I have come, Christ says, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Life and life more abundantly. What is Satan's goal? Christ says, steal, kill, destroy. Well, Satan's ultimate goal beyond stealing us away from a relationship with God and beyond taking our mortal lives, steal, kill, is leading us to our ultimate destruction, the cessation of our existence altogether. That's what he wants. If he can't steal us away from God, if he can't get at us to kill us, to take our mortal lives, he'll then work and work and work on us so that we will turn away from God in a permanent sense which would lead to our ultimate destruction, never to live again. That's his goal. But in response, Christ offers two things. First, he says life. And then, secondly, life more abundantly. What was Christ referring to? Well, the word life means the opportunity to live instead of suffering death or the death penalty for our sins. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf pays that penalty for us and opens up the opportunity that we have today. But truly and ultimately, life more abundantly points ultimately to the existence Christ taught us to pursue above all else, immortality and eternal life in the divine family of God. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, We're really praying for everything from when Christ returns all the way until there are no mortal lives anymore. Until all who are willing are divine. See, we have to understand that's the real end goal here. And can we see through these three the same message here? Look at Romans 8 and verse 18 again. Romans 8, now in verse 18. Romans 8 and verse 18. 
Where did Paul end up at the end of his mortal life? He ended up executed. And he's the one that we've been reading here. He knew what might befall him. Eventually, he knew for sure what would befall him. But he didn't despair, did he? Like we read in 2 Corinthians, he didn't despair if he was confused, for it wasn't for long, because he knew there was more. Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be, to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I mentioned on the Sabbath that several years ago in trying to envision, because I'm a very graphic sort of guy in my head, I need pictures, I make diagrams, you know, that in effect, from God's perspective, our life is like the space between your two fingers if you're holding your fingers really, really, really close. He looks at our lives and all that we're going through and says, this is what you have now. But what I'm offering you is the whole room. But see, what do we do as human beings? Our lives are the whole room. Ah! <laughs> this is going on and that's going on and this is happening and that is happening and I don't have this and I don't have that. And Oh, God, help me. Right? That's what it is. It squeezes everything else out. And see, what we're seeing here, as I hope you're seeing, is that we're being reminded when we come to the Feast of Tabernacles on the last great day, and when we have to teach people during those periods of time, that life for all of us as mortal human beings is just that little space. And what we're being offered is the whole room and beyond. And we're here to recapture that perspective. To remember that no matter what it is you and I face, and even as Paul said before, if that space goes and there's nothing there, meaning death, what do we receive? The whole room. So what do you want? That little bit of suffering, the whole room. And Paul had that perspective. So the suffering that we have now, that little space, does not compare with the whole room. And we need to have that perspective. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons, and we might say currently the daughters of God. So you ladies don't feel left out. Verse 20, For the creation was subject to futility. What's futility in the Greek? Decay. Anybody decaying here? Oh yeah, let's not go there. Not willingly. He personifies the creation, so it's not like the creation said, hey, I want to decay here, okay? No. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Hope of what? Hope of more. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. You and I are enslaved to decay. But it will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. No matter how much we may be blessed in this life, we're still subject to decay in this very limited mortal existence. But God is offering you and me, as Paul says, glorious liberty. And what will that be like? Stormstrong illustrated it well in The Mystery of the Ages. He writes, Our potential is to be born into the God family, receiving total power, far more than we have now. We are to be given jurisdiction over the entire universe. 
not just our houses and our yards. It will be an eternal life of accomplishment, constantly looking forward in super joyous anticipation. to new creative projects and still looking back also on accomplishments with happiness and joy over what we sh- what shall have been already accomplished. We'll have all eternity to do this. We shall never grow tired and weary. <laughs> oh, boy, I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait. I'm sure you can't either. Always alive, he says, full of joyous energy, vitality, exuberant life, and strength and power. I won't ask for a show of hands. You want that? Oh, yeah. If you're smart, you do. That's what we have to look forward to. To fully enjoy that divine existence, which is what we're talking about, we will need one essential component above all. And this is where it comes back to you and me. We will need a divine heart and a divine Mind. You see, without a divine heart and a divine mind, we cannot enjoy a divine existence. As we sit here today, we struggle with different things. We have our past. We have our baggage. We have our attitudes. We have our relationships that are not always the best. Given immortality and eternal life as we are now would just mean we would be miserable for eternity. I don't think we want that, do we? See, but we're being offered two choices, like it says in Deuteronomy. The divine existence, no existence. But for that divine existence to be a thing that we really, really look forward to, we've got to have a divine heart and mind. We've got to have a heart and mind that is right, or else we will never enjoy the divine existence we're being offered. And that's where it comes back to you and me. That's why developing a divine heart and mind is a prerequisite for eternal life. That's where the work needs to be. But this, too, is what we will teach the rest of humanity when Christ returns. Putting it all together, the picture becomes clear. The real ultimate goal is not a perfect world of humans under divine rule, but a divine heart, mind, and existence in the divine family of God. And this is where the whole world is ultimately headed. Second Peter 3 and verse 13. Second Peter 3 and verse 13. Peter here describes a world that, again, is hard to envision, living in such a conflicted, hateful, hurtful world today. But he's talking about what will come, a place that you and I long to be. Second Peter three and verse 13, Peter says, second Peter three and verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to God's promise, and we've seen today what that is, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which the most important thing dwells. And that is righteousness. That anyone who exists in that time and in that age And in that world, that realm, will only do what is right. No sin. No sin that disrupts and divides. No sin that does harm to other people. It will be a universe in which only righteousness dwells. 
And what will be the result of that? Revelation 21 and verse 3. Revelation 21 and verse 3. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That's what God wants more than anything. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Just like we have our daughter here at the feast this year. She lives about 800 miles away in Charlotte, North Carolina. I wish she lived with us, but she can't. She doesn't. It's not what, you know, is to be for now. My son lives, or our son lives in, well, around Prescott, Arizona, up in the mountains. That's a lot further than 800 miles away. And we will see him, God willing, in another week or so after the feast is over. I wish I could see them every day. That's what a father feels. It's what a mother feels. But it's what God feels. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Why? Because only righteousness will exist at that time. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Mr. Armstrong writes this in the Mystery of the Ages. Finally, the at-one-ment will be completed. Both God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, in us, and we united with him as one great supreme God family. Another way of saying that is the result will be a divine family at peace. In the next stage, both during the millennium of the great white throne judgment, our primary responsibility will be to help bring this about. Working together with Christ to help every single willing person reach that ultimate goal. Jeremiah 3 and verse 15. Jeremiah 3 and verse 15. This is about you and me. You might want to read it again later and take some time to contemplate you being there and doing this. Jeremiah 3 and verse 15. What is God here telling the descendants of Jacob? Jeremiah 3 and verse 15. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart. Shepherds care for. They protect. They assess needs. They meet needs. And that's what you and I are here to learn more about and to practice as we're here. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's why we need to learn. But to really learn, we need to practice. Because when things are practiced, that means you've really learned them. Verse 16, Then it shall come to pass when you are, are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. We won't be building an ark at the beginning of the millennium. Why? Because at that time, verse 17, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Not a box with a mercy seat on it symbolizing the throne of the Lord. It will be the throne of the Lord. And he will be present. And all the nations shall be gathered to it to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. And most of all, no more 
shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So what is the message for you and me today? We're here at the Feast of Tabernacles. What does this have to do with you and me now for the next eight days? Well, a family at peace is our goal. It's your goal. It's my goal. It's a necessary prerequisite for us to receive eternal life in the family of God. Now is our time to work toward that goal. But in order to experience that family at peace, that divine existence we've seen, we have to develop a divine heart and mind now, while we have the opportunity. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. You see, we have to come to have that kind of a perspective to understand that to enjoy the divine existence we long for, we have to have the kind of heart and mind that allows us or will enable us to enjoy it, to thrive and to flourish in it. And that is the work we must do now. First, sorry, yes, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. This is a little further down from what we read earlier. What does Paul say in light of the things he was talking about earlier? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now all these things happened to them, to Israel, as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Why it's recorded for us is so that we can learn the lessons and apply them upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What is that about? You see, at the end of the age, we recognize that the church will begin to take on characteristics that it ought not. Mr. Jonathan McNair at the men's training session back in August in North Carolina made a very interesting statement. He said, overconfidence is the error of our era. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. How much do you know? How much are you living God's way of life? Don't assume we've got it all down. Because the likelihood is we don't. I don't. And I'm pretty sure the rest of us don't. There is still work to do. And we've got to remember that. The accounts of Israel and the wilderness are recorded for you and me. So that we can do what they did not do and finish our wilderness journey and take our permanent place in the divine family of God. 2 Corinthians 5 again, but verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. We read earlier about the house that we're looking forward to while we are in this tent. But Paul always makes a point about it. He always comes back to, therefore, dot, dot, dot. So what does he say here? With a permanent house we're looking forward to while in this temporary tent, what's the moral of the story? 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to what? Be well-pleasing to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You know, as a pastor, I'm continually struck by statements like Mr. Weston made last night when he was telling us we are to attend the entire feast. And he was talking about doing all that God says. And yet he says, what do people do? Well, I'll just attend the first and last days, the high days. Or I don't feel like coming today, or it's my goal during the feast to take a break from the feast during the feast. Okay? Okay, what is that about? That's about making our own rules, isn't it? Right? And what is the error of Laodicea? What is Laodicea about? The people rule. The people come up with their own rules. And we're suffering from that today. We really are. I hate to say it, but we are. We make our own rules. Well, I don't need to be at opening night services. Or I don't need to be at the services between the holy days. I'll just come then. What was read to us last night? And God says, obey me. There is a problem when we don't obey him. You can get away with it today. Not really, though. But what I'm saying is you can slide in and out. But see, we're reminded here, Paul's saying, wait till the end here. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You're standing there today. The only reason why we don't shake in fear is we can't see him. But when you and I make our own rules, guess what? When you and I stand before Christ, we won't get away with excuses. The man who buried his talent did what? He said, well, I knew you were a hard man. He's doing what Adam did in the garden. It's your fault, God. I knew you were a meanie. And so I was so afraid of you because you're such a meanie that I just buried the talent in the ground. So here it is. And what does Christ say? He says, you wicked and lazy servant. Wicked and lazy. You weren't willing to put in the effort to become what you need to become with all the help I have to offer you. You've buried the talent, so guess what? You lose it. One of the ways we strengthen each other in our congregations and as we strengthen each other here is that we do what God says. Because when you look around and you see people doing what God says, when you see parents parenting as they ought to, when you see husbands and wives treating each other properly, when you see the same people coming every single day to every single service, when you see people looking out for each other, that helps you to think, that's the way I've got to be. But when you see people that are here today but not tomorrow, and not until the last great day, right? you see people making exceptions for themselves constantly, what does that do? That, that brings us down, doesn't it? It tears us down. It deconstructs. Every one of us has the opportunity to lift up the others. What are you doing? And what are you going to be doing during this feast? God is watching. And at some point along the line, you will have to give an answer for, what, for the choices you made and the rules you chose to keep. We need to remember that. There's still work to do. 
And only God can develop that divine heart and mind in us, but we have to give ourselves fully to him in order to make that happen. Because it's the only way we're going to start doing what we ought to be doing. We've got to let him form and shape us. And the feast is an excellent time to do that more wholeheartedly because we're here to devote ourselves again to that change. Hebrews 3 and verse 16. Hebrews 3 and verse 16. Notice here what Paul is saying. We read in chapter 4, but let's back up a little bit to see what was said in the lead up to this. Hebrews 3 and verse 16, speaking again of Israel. Hebrews 3 and verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Verse 17. Now with whom was God angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? What is sin? Disobedience to every word or any word of God. Whenever we sin, we've made our own rule. Well, God says this, but dot, dot, dot. I'm going to do that. And sometimes we do it so easily and so quickly and so much without thought, we don't realize what we're really doing. Let me put it in terms that might emphasize it better. Remember what I said earlier? There's a choice between divine existence and no existence. Those of us who make our own rules, every time we do it, every time we make an excuse, every time we make an exception, you're choosing no existence. Period. Which do you want? If you want this glorious divine existence, stop making your own rules your own excuses, your own exceptions to the Word of God. Because there's no in-between. It's only one or the other. Verse 18, Hebrews 3, verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? A picture for you and me of immortality and eternal life in the divine family of God, but to those who did not obey. Very simple. The message is always the same. Just simply do what God says. And so in verse 11 or verse 12, going back up a few verses, what does Paul say here? Verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We have to ask God to eliminate anything in our hearts and minds that could cause us to fall in the spiritual wilderness. We need to learn to obey every word of God. You see, because the reason why we have to ask God to take the wrong things out of us is that as long as these things remain a part of our sinful nature, we're going to sin. So God has to purify our nature so that there's nothing in us that would be led to sin. But you see, like Israel, or unlike Israel, we must not resist the need to change. We were called to change. We were called to obey. We were called to learn to make choices that lead to a divine existence rather than to no existence. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Hebrews 4, and verse 11. 
All of this is what we're here to learn. Hebrews 4 and verse 11. Paul says here, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, the promised life in the divine family of God, lest anyone fall according to the same example of what? Disobedience. Verse 15. But what if you're sitting here now and you're thinking, oh, but wow, I struggle with stuff I just can't seem to change. Sometimes so badly that I don't even want to pray about it because I feel so ashamed of myself. Are you to feel that way permanently? Is there help for you? Yeah, it's right here. Hebrews 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, tested, challenged, yet without sin. The only difference was he never never chose no existence. Therefore, let us come boldly, confidently, it means, to the throne of what? A throne of judgment and condemnation, a throne of grace. See, the very time you need grace is when you feel like you don't deserve grace. And that's exactly what he, why he's telling us what he is. He's saying exactly when you need it is exactly when you come. And you need to have a confidence there that God doesn't sort of look away or cross his arms and refuse to hear you. Come to a throne of grace that you may obtain what? Mercy. Mercy presumes wrongdoing. Mercy and find grace. The graciousness of God to help. The graciousness that led him to call us in the first place when we were evil and enemies. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help when? When we don't need it? No, in time of need when we absolutely do need it. Paul is telling us that God is more than willing to provide as much help as we need to deliver us from anything that could prevent us from entering his family. All we need to do is go to him anytime, every time, even at the worst times. The feast is yet another opportunity to practice being a family at peace. That happens and should happen in our temporary dwellings for the next eight days, in our natural families, and in our interactions and activities as members of our festival congregation. Becoming a family at peace, learning how to do so, and really doing so, is how we prepare to bring the rest of the world to that goal. So let's use the opportunity here for the next eight days to practice being a family at peace in preparation to help the rest of humanity to do the same in the next stage. Happy Feast.